Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I, I spent the last about 24 hours reading through this Gordon Sondland testimony. Yeah, it's a lot to get through. It's a lot to, well, that, that's, I mean, I guess these these testimonies are what, like eight or nine hours, like right. in, in real time, there's a few breaks and whatever. And obviously you can read much faster than people can talk the words, but still, it's, it's a long time. Yep. Um, and you want to kind of get, and, and when you're, when you're reading testimony like this, you really want to kind of be processing the details because that's where sort of things that aren't totally obvious are going to are are going to come out and I and I've been I've been looking forward to reading this testimony maybe seeing him testify publicly because he is sort of like he's like the odd man out in this whole drama because you've got a list of people who are maybe they were like a little involved or maybe more than a little involved but they're clearly like reluctant reluctantly involved and those people have by and large you know testified and in some cases said things very damaging to the president and his pals and then you have other people who are like total crooks and they're totally on board and they're not going to testify and all this kind of stuff and Sondland is this guy who's sort of kind of like between like wants to be evil but (laughs) not that good at being evil right um and and i was sort of looking i was looking forward to hearing his testimony because in everything I have seen of this guy, you get that tension that he's, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, when you're at a dock and like a boat is leaving the dock, you you can get on, but at a certain point, you've, you've got to get on the boat or stay on the dock or else you're just going to fall between the two. And that's him in, in this whole thing. And the uh, transcript has sort of been everything I could have hoped for because it's like very awkward and he's... He's 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 kind of trying. He's clearly like trying to lie throughout the whole thing, but he's doing it, or he's trying to do it in the right way, which is to say a lot of like I don't recall, and like I'm not sure when it came together. There was no there was no one moment. It was a continuum and right. all this all this stuff. But it's also clear that he's just not good at it. He's not he's not like I said. He's he wants to be evil, but he's not really good at being evil. And, and so, and, and, and there are various points, and th- this is the thing that I, I, I did a post about this today in response to one reader's email, that uh, a few times his lawyer jumps in and says, can we have a moment? And we obviously don't know what they said to each other, and that's privileged communications, but by what happens afterwards, it seems really, it seems pretty clear that what Bob Luskin, his lawyer, said to him is like, dude, don't lie knock it off like you're you need to rein it you need to just just tell the truth because usually after those he'll come back and say oh okay my lord clarified what we're talking about <laughs> and so now i'm going to say something totally different right uh and and obviously we know subsequently and this came out at the same time as the transcript yesterday that subsequent to that testimony he his lawyer 
on his behalf, put out this statement where he basically kind of like in substance recanted his entire testimony. Right. This key point about whether there was a quid pro quo, a a, a, a proposed deal uh, for you know the announcement of an investigation for for military aid. So that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what's going on for me, David. Yeah, well, let's. Um, I'm excited to get into all that. And joining us in the studio, as always, Kate Riga is here. How are you? Hello, everyone. Still hey. juiced from election night, the best night of the year. Yes, indeed. And Josh Kvensky, our semi-regular fourth <laughs> uh, companion here. What's up, Josh? Not much. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Uh, before we get too deep into the impeachment transcripts, let's just hear a word from our sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew. Do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop? Sure, although I'm not great at doing that lately. Are you a do-it-yourselfer? A brew-it-yourselfer? So is Grady's Cold Brew. You asked and they delivered. Brew it yourself with Grady's New Orleans-style coarse-ground coffee blend. It's designed to work in any cold or hot coffee maker, and one bag makes 24 servings of Grady's Cold Brew exactly the way you want it. Order it online and receive, a, receive 16 ounces of their famous blend of 100% Arabica beans and French chicory in a resealable pouch for long-lasting freshness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Or you can order Grady's on Amazon.com for next day delivery. Okay. All right. Josh, like you said, we've been basically focused on this Gordon Sondland transcript for about the last day. Also released around the same time was a transcript from uh, Kurt Volker, the special envoy to Ukraine. Right. Josh Kavinsky, you more dug into the Volker stuff. So maybe yeah. you tell us what jumps out. Well, so, I mean, Josh was saying earlier that Sondland in his testimony is very clearly kind of trying to be evil and he's trying to dissemble before, before the committee, but he doesn't really succeed. Um, Volker is way more experienced and he's much more of kind of a diplomat and a politician. And so he basically succeeds in evading the questioning. So um, it's to the point where at multiple points that Adam Schiff like asks him, are you naive? Or like, it's, it's interesting because I remember at the at the time of his testimony, we had or soon had his prepared remarks, but we also had those texts that he right. brought in or I don't know if they're WhatsApp yeah. or, or yep. whatever, but texts between all the people. And it was very striking and jarring at the time. That the text laid it out pretty clearly what yeah. was happening, and yet his prepared remarks were like, "Yeah, there was no quid pro quo, and I didn't really see anything." And, and you're like, "Dude, the text that you brought right. in, have you saying I did everything?" There's so so, well, but it sounded like he pulled. I mean, such as it is, pulled it off in the test that continued through the testimony. Yeah. And I was struck with with Sondlin that again there were you know you you make the point about. Giuliani is Trump's attorney. Okay, we all we all know this. It's been in the news for you know for years now. And there's a <laughs> one of the funny things with Sondland. There are these repeated cases where he gets cute on irrelevant points. Like at one point, someone asks him. I guess it's the committee questioner asks him like, "You you know Giuliani is Trump's attorney?" And he's like, "Well." I've seen news reports. <laughs> I can't say that I know it. And and after and they go back and forth. And at the and at a certain point, the questioner's like, "Dude, come on! Like, yeah. what? Like, what? What are you? What are you doing here?" But it sounds like it sounds like Volker was a little more. Well, and I mean, he was a little, a little bit. Tough. He was a little bit tougher, but he also. I mean, there were some really revealing moments. So one moment that really stuck out to me, um, and that really I think goes to the heart of at least one element of the scandal, which is uh, you know the extent to which both political appointees, but also longer term State Department officials, were involved in all of this, um, is when the committee kind of asks Volker about 
uh, what he thought of the underlying allegations, whether or not they should be investigated. And Volker, I mean, drew this really kind of cute line that was also, I mean, really uh, shocking, where he said, um, you know, well, I think that the uh, allegations of Ukrainian interference in 2016 elections and the Burisma allegations, you know, I don't think they're substantiated, but I think that they deserve to be investigated. Which is this, I mean, from one side, it's the kind of like, objectivity that is just i mean like a very like inane objectivity like sure like everything should be investigated but it also really i mean in that context right he's an intermediary between ukraine and the u.s and he's dealing with these people like giuliani and lutsenko and he basically understands how everything works right it's really not a good look like yeah I, you know one of the things that strikes me about the totality of this information is that even people i mean bill taylor clearly thought this was wrong, thought it was a bad idea in policy terms. He said as much at the time, and he's he's been you know very helpful to the investigation. So on all these fronts, it's pretty clear where he stands. And yet he participated in this. You know, yeah. it's not yeah. I'm not yeah. like throwing stones. He was he was obviously trying to, you know, saying this is not a good idea, blah 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 blah. But at the end of the day, he was part of this group that was moving this along. And as far as we know he didn't file a whistleblower report. Now, you know, career foreign service officer, the president's on board, the secretary of state's on board, these other people like Gordon Sunland are on board. You know, you, you sort of say it's not a good idea. So I'm not, I'm not trying to judge him, but it, but it is striking to me um, that even the sort of the, what seems to be the goodest guy in the mix, still himself was part of this and trying to move right. it forward. And I mean, then let's also remember that at, in September, the I mean, compromise that they basically landed on at the end of all of this um, was that Zelensky was going to go on CNN and basically say, well, yeah, we're investigating Biden or we're investigating. <laughs> it's like, and wasn't there that his, that I think Taylor's compromise was maybe you get the attorney general or, you know, the Ukrainian equivalent of the attorney general, they had him go on and say it. So he's clearly trying to like soften it. A bit, yeah. yeah. Make it not quite as bad, but it's still pretty bad. Right. Right. And that's the that's the good guy. I mean, it's it's always it's always striking to me. And, I, and I've seen this in scandal after scandal after a couple decades of watching this stuff. And I and, and yet I still get surprised. Power gets people to do some really fucked up stuff. It, it just does. Um, and and uh, people who know better and it's it's so it's it's uh i don't want to say it's human nature but it is it is striking what people will do um and again we know bad people do bad things but even right. people who know better and aren't bad people you get uh carried along by the by the force of events i think that's the only way to put it yeah yeah that's an interesting point i mean we should maybe let's touch again on the soundland detail which was at the end of his deposition transcript there's a few additional pages of revised testimony i guess this was added on tuesday i want to say i think it came uh, out or, at the same time with the yeah uh, it came out with the right came out at the same yeah, time but it yeah. was sort of re-entered or yeah entered into the kind of official record right uh this week in which he says um you know conversations with volker and i think others have refreshed my memory basically right and then he now recalls uh telling a top aide to uh president zelensky of ukraine Yermak, right i forget his, yeah, forget yeah, his yeah, first yeah. name Yermak. um that the military aid that was you know desperately sought after by ukraine was contingent on on this public announcement of investigations i mean what do you guys make of that i don't know update to his testimony does he sort of realize oh shit i'm kind of in trouble with uh maybe not being 
totally forthright. I, I think I think I just I mean, I'm sort of spacing on what I just said on on during the episode as opposed to just before. But I think I just said how his own lawyer during the testimony had to kind of say, dude, right, right. try you need to tell the truth, knock it off. I think it's just what it looks like. It's just unsustainable to be yeah. saying that. And mm-hmm. and what I will say, and I mean, just having been sort of swimming in the in the test in the in the transcript of the testimony for the you know for most of the day this is not like one thing he said and now he's recanting it is om- like two-thirds of the time he's testifying in some sense or another he is addressing this question did you know that there was that that there was a quid pro quo and that it was about the military aid i mean that is literally two-thirds of the testimony yeah. and it's always nope didn't occur to me, didn't know about it, uh, you know, maybe heard about it, you know, three days ago, you know, blah, blah, you know, so yeah. again and again and again. And so he denies it so many different ways. How could I have known, didn't know, when I finally, you know, when Bill Taylor said it, I was so shocked because how could this be? That's right. terrible. I mean, I guess, and I actually, I did a post today about this based on a, a uh, a reader email from a from a lawyer who's an expert in in this area about basically trying to undo your your perjury. Um, as long as you do it, basically before the pr- the proceeding ends. So like they're still doing closed door testimony. So you have a much greater ability to go back and say, okay, let me change that, as opposed to when it's done. Then you're kind of whatever. But again, it's one of these things where okay, I guess he sort of it makes sense to let him change his testimony. But again, he denies it so many different <laughs> right. times that any idea that you're refreshed is is just absurd. And just frankly. sort of slipping it in as like a an addendum is a bit rich <laughs> yeah. too, right? But you have to worry what happened behind the scenes that really prompted him and prompted him to do that, right? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I I have to imagine because there's other things along those lines too, um, you know that. Uh, I have to imagine he his lawyer saying like, dude, you can be charged with perjury, and Bill Barr will not be running the Justice Department forever. Like, I don't know exactly what the statute of limitations is on perjury, um, but yeah, I mean, I you know, yeah, it, it's just I think it's just clear that it's it's um, I can't remember the exact order of events, you know, who testified exactly after him and stuff like that, but basically everybody has said he's lying, so it's just. It's right. just not tenable. Right. And even this morning we had like, I think it was Fiona Hill, her lawyer issued a statement saying that he had fabricated communications. And that's <laughs> a new the one, them, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, isn't that new, in the letter yeah. though? Like that's not even in the testimony. I think yeah, that's I think a new right. thing that they came up with in the letter. It brings us to another point, which is a post our colleague Tierney Sneed wrote just about the the demand of this public statement about an investigation. I mean, you know, the investigation itself almost is beside the point, but the actual, the announcement of it is really what Trump was after, right? It's sort of like these perceptions. I mean, right. what's your, I mean... Well, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, politically, it, I mean, it kind of underscores how useful it is just to have an investigation into somebody, even if it even if it doesn't exist. I mean, even if it's not going anywhere. Just, I mean, the fact that, like, you know, Joe Biden or whoever is under investigation in some country just casts such a cloud over them. And it also just provides cover for any number of, like, I don't want to say fake stories, but just like y- y- so many insinuations. Like you can say, okay, uh, even just when people see the headline, like, oh, there was a document request or, oh, there was like some, you know, some investig- some investigative action occurred like somewhere in the world relevant to Joe Biden. It just like casts cloud. And we can, all, I mean, it, it also, I think the experience of the 2016 election, where obviously you had this huge investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails 
and you know a week before uh i mean not, nothing even really significant happened but it was just you know very briefly reopened or there was a new examination it's, a, it's a massive like, confirmation and validation right. for his in unless and until a kind of total you know exoneration we found out he was perfect yeah. statement gets made i mean right. that's right. like the inherent weakness of headlines right you only have so many words so you're going to say investigation launch you're not going to also say investigation launch but it seems very politically motivated yeah. and we really don't think there's anything to it yeah and yeah. then it's like a clause in every news story that uh-huh. gets written about biden and so on and so on i think the other yeah. the other point there is that actually manufacturing evidence is pretty hard and it's pretty hard for it to stand up to scrutiny so but but an investigation you say oh yeah we're launching investigation that yeah. and and that gets you you know, that gets you down to like the 10 yard line, at least, if not the five yard line or something right. like that. And and there's no risks because you just we're just investigating, you know. Uh, and the one thing that when I was reading the Sunland testimony, the one thing and, and I think a few weeks ago I was saying this, that the deliverable was just the statement. He's on TV. That's can be in commercials, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. That that's the deliverable. The investigation, like, who cares if there's an investigation? Because a, they're not going to find anything, and if they're going to manufacture something, that's hard and it's risky. Yeah. Blah, plus, blah, blah, blah. the election's a year away. It's going to take a long time for any sort of, you know, quote unquote investigation to play out. But here's the thing: in in the in the Sondland testimony, and in the the when the GOP, you know, minority questioner staff questioner is 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 doing the the questioning of Sunlin what comes out to me there it wasn't clear to me if Sunlin and the Republicans thought we're going to kind of say it's not really investigation it's just a statement and that's going to be not as big a deal and and that is going to be mitigating not really an investigation just like a press statement a press release that's not a not that big a deal so it wasn't totally clear to me whether that is the entirety that is entirely true or they were trying to make it sound more true than it was on the theory that it was exculpating or at least mitigating, when in fact, I think it's the opposite. Because if you just want a statement, clearly you have no substantive interest right. in, in, in corruption. You just, it's politics, it's purely politics. All you so, want is a smear, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We yeah. just want you on the record saying Joe Biden is bad. Yeah. And so I can repeat it every day for the next 12 months, basically. And especially if this was gonna end up being, I mean, that's the, sort of the irony also of this idea that it was, it was either CNN or Tucker Carlson, they're gonna have like Zelensky or the prosecutor general go on. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that is a clip that you could just play in every campaign ad for just a year, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what that would have been. Like, well, the, the other and thing- the idea of Tucker, sorry to just interrupt, yeah. I think it was, it was this was in Tyranny Sword today, the idea of Tucker Carlson was that you were kind of guaranteed that Trump would see that. This is another thing I'm waiting for with Bill Taylor, because I think in the Bill, it was in the Bill Taylor prepared remarks, he said the ask was for CNN. Okay. Which always had, (laughs) so there's this, you know, kind of conflict there. And it was very striking to me then, because it sort of, what the reason it struck me was that in their, in their moment of truth, that even Trump and Giuliani realized that like Fox is garbage. If you really want it to be serious, you need it. You need it to be on CNN, yeah. which frankly I think is true. All sorts of crazy stuff gets said on Fox all the time. I mean, if it's the president of Ukraine, it's going to be very different. But still, so I'm curious when when Taylor speaks, yeah. what's gonna you know? There's there's sort of like a CNN Fox. I feel like it's that story there. That same thing as how right after uh, the election, Trump said that really pathetic thing about. 
like, oh, I thought the New York Times would be nice to me now or something like that. It's like he does as much as, you know, there's all this ballyhoo about him being the change maker and the swamp drainer and blah, blah, blah. Like he wants respect from these establishment places, probably even more than legitimate president. So, you know, I think the CNN thing is so he can be like, look, even, you even know, fake news CNN. Even fake news CNN, yeah. which is totally, you know, an inherent contradiction. <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Josh Marshall, you've had this Tom Wamsgam kind of thread on Twitter over yeah. the last, um, I don't know, week or two mm-hmm. related to Gordon Sondland. Let's maybe do a little spoiler free uh, dive into that. Sort of how did you, I don't know, how did you come arrive at that well I okay so there's a show on HBO called Succession and and it just concluded its second season and uh, my wife and I started watching it I don't know a couple months ago something like that so we kind of you know watched it all over a period of a couple months there is a character in it called Tom Wamsgans and he is he's actually the husband uh, let me just back up a little bit. This show is about someone who's supposed to be kind of like Rupert Murdoch, big press baron, sort of American oligarch. His uh, four children who are all contending to succeed the father and kind of, you know, the big family, business, political, whatever. Um, and this guy, Tom, is the husband of one of the children, uh, the daughter, whose name is Shiv. <laughs> clever nickname. Exactly. Yes, I, was, I, was, I was fascinated. Okay, clever Siobhan nickname. is her full name. Siobhan, yeah. but I've never heard that nickname before yeah, for Siobhan. So I, in any case, Tom is wants to be a crook and an oligarch and kind of play in this power world. But he's actually just like a kind of a normal person from the Midwest. So yeah. he like, sort of like Gordon Sunland, wants to be evil, but isn't quite, it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's, uh, he's trying too hard. And, and it, it, he, his character is suffused by awkwardness of, yeah. of, of being betwixt in between. And he has, from the beginning, Sondland just feels like that character. And actually, uh, in the, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but at one point in the series, there's, uh, he and one of his colleagues actually have to testify before Congress. And it's, you know, it's just as awkward yeah, as you'd think with, exactly. with too clever by half and getting caught in lies and stuff like this. So, uh, Sondland just totally reminds me of him. And I have this, I want to find a way that if, if there can be like a mass movement start to get, uh, what is it? Matthew McFadden. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, uh, who's, who's actually English. Uh, right, or, British actor, yeah. Yeah, British actor. And it's funny because his whole character is is bound up in his, in his being from the Midwest. Yeah. He's got a, like a twangy upper Midwest um, accent. So it's sort of jarring that he's actually that he's actually British. And I, I, I assume that's how his name is pronounced. He has one of these sort of Gaelic, you know, where they take a name we know in one way and kind of add <laughs> right. a bunch of vowels to it and make it look different. In any case, um, I have this fantasy that that like he could do a dramatic reading let's of the get Sunland him, Let's get him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And one of Tom Wamsgam's sort of evil but kind of pathetic escapades is that he uses like actual people as furniture, like a footstool. He gets like one of his oh, kind right. of... Um, lackeys or aides or assistants right, right, or whatever right. to kind of just like kneel in front of him on the couch and he like puts his feet up on top of him so it's just that's very funny because like one of the early things about Gordon Sondland was that he was just doing this incredibly lavish like renovation of the uh, EU ambassador residence in, in Brussels 
Um, and there's this like video of it online of just him discussing like, you know, multimillion, like, like the kitchen and like all of this entertainment. But I mean, it's it, the purpose of it was it was just ridiculously lavish in the way that like, you know, a really rich person with horrible taste. <laughs> right. <laughs> we we want to do it. Right. And the right. scandal being that it's U.S. government dollars going to. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is with with and you mentioned about the, the footstool and everything that this I mean. Succession is just an amazing series. Like, I, I really can't recommend it enough for anybody who likes sort of like, you know, kind of premium binge watching TV. But it is about these, uh, you know, big plutocratic families where everyone is sort of like a carnivore, right? Out that, to get that, each other. Yeah, just and, and, and in a few times in my time living in New York and just kind of in the political world and stuff, I've crossed paths with these people. And it is one of the things I love about the show and always, and also I find jarring about the show is I've, I've seen these people before and they're, and, and that they're like, they are like that. I even some of the, and some of them are people who are kind of that you've seen in, in the, um, in the orbit of, of, of people like Trump and just using power like that. And that kind of carnivorous kind of posture towards the world is second nature to them and one of the one of the great things about the tom character it's not second nature to him but he wants it to be second exactly. nature to him so he's he you know, sees himself as eventually the ceo of the company or yeah. has ambitions of yeah. that level exactly and so the whole kind of like you know i'm gonna make you get on your knees and i'm gonna put my legs up <laughs> right. on you is this kind of like you know clown it you know it's 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 you see this in all sorts of ways of people trying to get to be someone they want to be but aren't and and it's the lack of the naturalness that gives them away right well you know so there's some details in the ukraine scandal that i think actually are reflective of that so in particular the firing of ivanovich one detail that came out this past i think it was the other day was that um she was basically her term was going to end in july 2019 that was the original and so then it was extended a year um, and at some point in her testimony, er, in her discussions with people, I mean, she makes the point, like, why didn't they just curtail, like, basically move me back to the original end of my tour instead of just recalling me two months early? Because, like, I mean, it sort of gives away the whole thing and makes it into something that was politically motivated and right. scandalous. Whereas if they had just let her term expire in the way it was originally sent to expire, it would have avoided the entire scandal. Right. So, right. Like, I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it's sort of manufactured yeah. in. Well, there, there's a yeah, number of I mean, things in the, in the timeline that sort of show that implicitly show that there is this, you know, that there are two processes going on because Trump has this kind of angered conversation with those guys when they come to debrief after the inauguration where, and it's really, that's one of the most jarring parts of the testimony, that Trump clearly has this deep rage-based anger about Ukraine. And we can speculate where that's from but those guys come out of that meeting like shell-shocked because the 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 top line is go talk to rudy go talk to rudy but there's all this like they screwed me over they tried to take me down all this kind of crazy stuff and then a few days later Zelensky gets this invite from the white house like hey come on down We're, we're friends and clearly that didn't come from trump clearly the other echelon kind of was moving forward this totally different thing and the thing with Yovanovitch is 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 the same is another example of that that there's been this ongoing push to get rid of her get rid of her get rid of her and then presumably from the sort of the state department chain they try to re-up her for even longer which is totally unnecessary you just cycle out i mean it's it's there are like there's not official terms of office, but they're informal terms of office for for ambassadors. So clearly, these, as you said, these two totally contradictory 
policy trajectories are taking place and a lot of what got them into trouble are just when they collided with, with each other. And if they just would have been a little more consistent on, on, and on top of things and, and, and uh, not been operating across purposes with each other, at least some of these points would have been avoided. And that kind of goes to like, just the ham-handedness of Sondland's involvement in the first place. Like, I mean, this has been a question from the beginning, but I mean, what was the EU ambassador, the ambassador of the EU doing, uh, basically trying to manage Ukraine policy? I mean, that question still is like, I mean, it's kind of an answered. He actually said in his testimony that that was green-lighted by both Bolton and Pompeo, which but, is interesting. And even there, but, but like, even there, though, there's like, he he clearly says it was Trump or had said it was Trump. And given given everything we know, it seems like Pompeo and Bolton may have like acceded to it. But clearly that wasn't their idea because they were... Bolton was trying to kind of run interference on all of this stuff. And Pompeo was at least passively. And there's just all this weird stuff. Like in, in his prepared remarks, he says, you know, Ukraine was a small part of my brief as, as EU ambassador, but it was central to my job and blah, 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 blah. And then later in the, later in the questioning, the staff questioner says like, well, you 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 said central to your job. He says, oh, no, I didn't say that, dude. And 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 the staffer's like... Okay, let's go back to the thing. It says, can you read this? And he's like, it was totally central to my mission. And he's like, <laughs> okay, okay, sure. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah. you're just not that good at being evil. Right. Um, all right, before we move on, I want to talk about, or before we move on to talk about election night last night, maybe we can just end this topic here. Next week, we have public hearings for the first time featuring Bill Taylor, uh, Marie Ivanovich. What do you make that... What do you make of the fact that we're moving into that phase before we've heard from people like John Bolton or Rick Perry or Mick Mulvaney? You know, obviously, they, those some of those people are just refusing to show up. But what does that signal to you guys? I mean, I think one of the things about the scandal that helped make it, I mean, immediately scandalous was that all the evidence was there basically from the first week. I mean, it was just immediately clear what had happened, probably because it had percolated throughout the summer, but also just because of the way it came out with the transcript and the whistleblower complaint itself being released. Yeah, they coughed up the key evidence at the <laughs> beginning. Consecutively. So, yeah. I mean, you don't really need these people to, I mean, I think kind of make the case just like in a new way. What they really are serve, I mean, the purpose they're going to serve, right, is to just kind of illustrate, illustrate it for average Americans and just tell the story, just keep them at the front of people's minds. And it, it's... They're not laying out new evidence. They're reinforcing what people think they already know. Yeah, I'd say I'm of two minds about this because on the one hand, it's going to be horrible and long and the questions are going to be stupid right. and everyone's going to be performative. But on the other hand, I th I think what you said is right. I think people are going for like most people who aren't eyeballs deep in this, it's going to be here it is, you know, I understand it, but I just... Kind of like when Mueller testified well, after... Well, I was going to say, Mueller is kind of the source of my biggest qualm, because all people remembered from his testimony is like, wow, he's older than I thought, <laughs> you know, he's like a little slower than I thought, and I think that didn't end up helping Democrats' case all that much. But Michael Cohen, though, that testimony, I think, still resonates in people's minds, True. and if they, I mean, if, if it ends up being something like that, where you have these people who said, well, like, I'm a longtime government official, I've, been, I've worked for both administrations, you know, for 30, 40 years, for administrations of both parties, and they come out and say, well, this is, I've never seen anything like this, this is horrifying. Right, yeah. I just, I think it's going to be, this stage of things is always so much about optics and so performative that... It will be helpful to Democrats if I think the diplomats perform, like you said, and if they're, you know, um, not even quick, but just confident, straightforward, easy to understand, don't get 
confused or mixed up by, you know, the Republican ridiculousness that will surely ensue. But if if anyone is a little bit less confident of a public speaker, I think the testimony will either just be lost, totally forgettable, or, you know, Republicans are going to use every opportunity of like a misstep or a misspoken thing to latch onto it, you know, so I think we'll likely see some of that as well. Yeah. I, I guess my, my basic sense there is that, well, first of all, they're obviously going first with the people who are most, on, they want to talk. Right. And they want to, they know what their story is. They want to tell it. And that was kind of, and just why this is, is a complex topic. But Robert Mueller, A, literally did not want to be there. True. And followed his report, the aim of which was basically to put facts out but never really connect them in any meaningful way. Uh, and you add to that the fact that he's he's an older guy. He's just a little slower, right? Um, so I have I have less concern about that what, where, um, where I worry a little, and let me try to say worry, is that um, one thing you get from those transcripts is you need a professional staff questioner. It's, it's, it's so much different. It's, they're just better at it. There's no grant. They have no, they're not politicians. They have, they have no reason to grandstand. You also have that they're going at it for like 30 minutes or an hour or Mm -hmm. something like that. So it's very consistent. And I do now, generally speaking, when you do these kinds of, you know, high stakes hearings, maybe you have everybody doing it, but everybody gets, all right, you're going to say this, you're going to say, this, and it's very set up. I worry a little more, you know, that it's a little more diffuse or whatever. My big concern, and I see why they're doing it this way, and it may be the right idea, is that I'm not so, you know, not so concerned about like John Bolton and people like that. Because we, as you said, we kind of know what happened at, at the White House. It's more that people like Rudy Giuliani, there's a whole kind of other part of this that we really still know relatively little about. You know, who exactly was he working with? All, all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I assume it's, A, I think they want to get a little ahead of this kind of Republican line about, oh, it's secret and it's a star chamber and stuff like that. And I think they also think they lead with these people and kind of like they just keep raising the temperature. And, you know, someone's going to someone's gonna break, basically. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm sure we'll we'll be back next week to talk more about that. Uh, Josh Kvensky, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. All right. Before we move on, let's hear a quick word from our... Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sponsor. Last night was another election night in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. and certain, I mean, I guess pretty much everywhere, but certain races that uh, were more important than others. It always seems like on these odd year election, election years, they kind of get overlooked, right? It's sort of in the past, it's been like the governor of New Jersey and it's been, you know, this and that, not, you know, any big congressional races or obviously the presidency and things like that. So last night we had big elections in Virginia. We had the Kentucky governor's race, which ended in an upset, a democratic victory there. Slim margin, about 5,000 votes. Um, The 
Republican incumbent, Matt Bevan, kind of pledging maybe he's going to try to contest it, this and that. Uh, and also some interesting elections in the in the Pennsylvania suburbs. Kate, you wrote, wrote about basically all of these. <laughs> kind of give us your global sense of, of what happened last night, uh, how it went for each side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to argue that it wasn't a really good night for Democrats overall. And that's not to say that there aren't some mitigating factors. You know, Bevin is the only statewide candidate in Kentucky who the only Republican who lost. So, you know, obviously you cannot take that result and, you know, extrapolate that Kentucky is a purple state now or something like that. But what I think his loss shows abundantly, besides his own deep and abiding unpopularity, (laughs) is, you know, the limitations of Trump's coattails because Trump, you know, had his arm draped around Bevin two days ago. He was there Monday night, is that right? Yeah, uh-huh. The day before the election. Right, and so... And Bevin, it still wasn't enough to put Bevin over the top. Republicans were still clearly extremely apathetic to him. And if anything, you know, I've seen some speculation that maybe his coming even bolstered Democrats a little bit more to come out to the polls. But yeah, so uh, the state attorney general, Andy Bashar, won by a small margin and Republicans are using that as grounds to they're floating that they might contest the election. Basically, the uh, majority leader in the Senate made uh, gave a quote to a local outlet um, in that vein today. And um, Bevan kind of set the stage last night. He wouldn't concede the election. He's saying that there were, uh, quote unquote, irregularities without specifying what that means. Said many of them have been corroborated or something like yeah, that. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... Anyway, um, I talked to the Kentucky Secretary of State, Allison Lundergan Grimes, and she kind of laid out the the avenues that they can take from here because there's no... She wasn't running for re-election, was she? The, Grimes. In this election? Yeah. No. Not okay, that I know she, of yet. Is she the former? Former Secretary of State? No, I think she's current. Oh, okay. I just, okay, but she wasn't running for re-election oh, last night. No, no, no. Okay, she got wasn't. it, got it. But, um, right, so there's no official uh, provision in Kentucky state law that allows for a recount on the governor or lieutenant governor level. So their other recourse is they can ask for a recanvassing, which is essentially not recounting the votes, but making sure essentially the, the addition is correct. Um, and then that would have to be, they'd have to submit that request by Tuesday. It'd have to be done by Thursday. It's, from what she said, fairly routine. She's seen it like over 20 times. It's just um, like, let's tally it up, make sure everything looks right. Yeah, generally right. a re-canvas is they, they just run the, they run the programs again, right. yeah. as opposed to like get them out and do them by hand or right. something. Right. And actually Matt Bevin was involved in one before in his 2015 primary, so it wouldn't even be new to him. But, you know, there's, since it's very unlikely that that would shift 5,000 votes in either direction. Is there a statutory percentage that you need to be within to, to have that recount? No, I don't think okay, so. Okay, so it's really just if you, just you, have to if request you want to do it. it. Okay, yep. got it. And that's... Yeah, and that's free and everything. But then um, the other recourse is this kind of antiquated statute where you can contest the entire election. Um, That hasn't been used in over a century. And the process is just fairly bizarre because you set up an 11-person board comprised of eight members of the House, three of the Senate. They're, quote-unquote, randomly selected by party leadership. There's no, you don't need a certain amount of Democrats, certain amount of Republicans, and both chambers are controlled by Republicans right now. So you can guess, you know, how that would go. Do you, do do they even need a theory of why they're doing it? Yes. Okay, and what's the, the theory? Well, it's vague. They're working on that? <laughs> yeah, the candidate is supposed to point to... Uh, some specific instances of errors made throughout the course of the election 
to make this uh, legitimate. And I reached out to... So not even just like counting the votes, like just someone was mean to me one time and that wasn't okay? It's fake. There's okay. no specific, and it Got hasn't it. been used since before the 1900s. Right. So it's not like it's been put to a test lately. But um, yeah, I reach out to the majority leader about what exactly these irregularities are. You know, no response there. But so they can do that with the 11 member board, and they can issue a new election if they decide okay. so. Um, and that and has to that new election would have to be announced or determined within like 30 days is that right well within 30 days is when bevan would have to request this after the race has been certified right gotcha um yeah so anyway that it would be like who's governor in the meantime if they have a new election i don't even know yeah. the lieutenant governor maybe it's just nobody nobody knows what's going on because right, this right, is right. never used and not to mention that it brings up possible u.s constitutional issues like the idea of throwing out what the voters said to be decided by a panel of people like you have to have a very compelling reason why this election was illegitimate which there doesn't seem to be any except that bevan is upset that he lost right that, that's that's what's most striking that they don't even so far it just seems to be they just don't it's almost like you know you want a second opinion yeah. Right. right. The, we don't like how the vote turned out. And so. 5,000 5, votes, certainly a close election, but it's not like razor. Right. Thing, yeah. And cer- certainly not. It's a relatively small. I mean, you know, compared to California, yeah. compared to Florida, it's a right. relatively small state. So right. it's not a tiny margin where you're just going to like count again and suddenly you gain 5,000 votes. Mm-hmm. That's pretty unlikely. Right. right. And then, you know, and as the Secretary of State was telling me, you know, she listed through these other elections that did have, um, you know, re-canvassing or you can do recounting lower down the ballot, just not for governorships. And she said that it never in her experience has it changed the outcome, even right. when it's been down to things like, you know, Bevin's primary was 83 votes or 11 votes or actual small numbers, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, so that's everything that's going on now. And, you know, Josh and I were dis- discussing a little bit before the pod started, you know, is this in earnest? Is this just a way for people, for Republicans to kind of be like, we're not powerless, you know, before they just accept the result? And, it, you know, it's not clear in some of the dynamics at work is that Bevin is hugely unpopular with Republicans. You know, they veto his stuff to embarrass him. They <laughs> go on the attack against him. From everything I've read, he is just not a fun guy to be around, you know? So, and that brings up the question of, are these Republicans willing to take this extreme measure and, you know, possibly get in trouble, have this go to court, blah, 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 for this person that they don't even like to begin with. Right. And, you know, they, they still control both houses of the yeah, state it's legislature. Not like the, it's not like the new guy's going to go like hog wild. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Or, I, I, w- I will say people, you know, uh, don't necessarily remember that Bevan started as, you know, the Republican establishment in that state is Mitch McConnell, who is the godfather of everything. And his first I, I, was a primary to run against. He ran a primary against McConnell. Yeah. Whatever it was, I can't remember. He was a an insurgent against McConnell. I mean, he was running against the Republican establishment. And now he's been governor, so a little acclimated mm-hmm. yeah but as you said he is like he's always been a thorn in the side of right. the republican party in that state he's sort of like a a uh, you know a, a john the baptist to trump's jesus basically <laughs> right a kind of you know an early, a progenitor yeah. of, of trumpism all right so that's kentucky <laughs> that uh, is kentucky for now <laughs> let's um let's shift to virginia and then i want to hear about the pennsylvania stuff so virginia good night for democrats as well mm-hmm. yeah absolutely they um 
won both uh, the state Senate and the House of Delegates, and they already controlled the governor's mansion. So that's a trifecta for Democrats in Virginia, which is like huge, not just for their legislative priorities, which gun control hovers around the top of those, but that means that they're going to spearhead redrawing the congressional districts after the 2020 census, which was kind of the crown jewel prize for whoever um, could could sway these chambers. And is this the first time Democrats have controlled all of those uh, chambers in tw- 25 years? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, a little bit more than that. And, you know, Democrats were pretty confident going into this because they had people come out like gangbusters in 2017. Um, this is the way the state has been trending bluer and bluer and bluer. You know, that's not a huge surprise. But it was decided fairly early in the night the the flips happened. Um, and... I think it's a lot of the kind of suburban-ish places that has been worrying Trump for a while because they have been getting so much bluer in reaction to him. So I think this is really the continuation of a trend that we've seen for a while, Mm -hmm. but with this kind of massively important end result because the, um, the maps in Virginia were so gerrymandered before that, you know, a court threw it out got all the way up to the Supreme Court, who upheld the lower court, which redistricted everything, which has also, you know, helped Democrats be able to win these districts that right. were not racially gerrymandered anymore. And obviously, Virginia votes in these off years, and that's always kind of ahead of a national type election. It's people look for signs as far as uh, which way things are going for kind of right. the next major election. I, I think one thing interesting that, that again, you have to sort of step back a little to, to even see is that everybody's like, you know, there are three big states, let's say Kentucky, Mississippi, and Virginia. But Virginia was all state legislative races, which national politics almost never pays attention to. The fact that these state legislative races were were raised to that level is itself a really big thing. Right. Well, and I think part of that, too, is how nervous people are for 2020 and are looking for a bellwether and absolutely everything. So you've got people paying attention to these state level races for the first time. There's actually a pretty good segue to our Pennsylvania. Yeah, totally. Races. So, yeah. Can I say just one yep. thing about, oh, yeah. about, about Virginia? Segwaying back. <laughs> yes. A, pre, a, a, a counter zig, <laughs> zig segue. Um, this is definitely a case where there has been this like decade long process of each cycle. Democrats keep pushing this, you know, pushing this boulder further up the hill. Um, and I guess it was, as you said, in twenty seven in twenty seventeen, mm-hmm. it got pretty close. And what, was that the year when they had the like the coin flip? Or oh my god, the yeah. picking the paper out of the right, bowl. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so, she won her the seat this time. Right. She so, beat him. <laughs> so it keeps, you know, it's it's a. Virginia is really kind of a laboratory where you have this this formerly red state uh, changing pretty quickly in in real time, and so it's not just starting with with this, but you know the fact that nationwide and not just activists in Virginia were so focused on this is mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, it's telling. I think also just one other thing. I mean, sort of unrelated, but. It seems like in presidential years, the polls close pretty early in Virginia, too. And so it's always kind of an early indicator, even right. the night, the yep. night right. of sort of which direction things are going. So with that said... Back to this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, what you just said is very reminiscent of how it is in Pennsylvania, that Virginia has been trending this way since the election. There has been a palpable and you know calculable response to Trump in these elections since. And in Pennsylvania, that's really true, too, also you know, on an even smaller than state level, which is what we had this year, which came down to these um, K-12 
county councils, you know, which doesn't sound like a huge deal, but these councils govern really big swaths of the Philadelphia suburbs. And the particular story was Delaware County, which for the first time since the Civil War, the Democrats now swept the city count or the county council and hold all the seats on it. Is, is that the county that's actually contiguous with the state of Delaware? So kind of down southeast? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, what's so shocking about that is that the Republican machinery in that county has hummed along uninterrupted for ages. And, you know, it was a really big deal in 2017 that Democrats managed to rip back two seats on that city council. That alone was historic. But that similar to Virginia, how it, you know, in 2017, there was progress. You know, this time there's more progress. That's how it's been here as well. And, you know, in um, neighboring Bucks County, similar, they uh, two Democrats, one Republican. So Democrats control that county board. You know, there is an at-large seat in Philadelphia itself that had been held by Republicans for 70 years that now a, a working families party person won. It's a similar thing. It's like this clear repudiation that's stemming out from the suburbs. And in Pennsylvania particularly, which is one of the three states that's constantly ad nauseum cited as the reason that Trump won in 2016, you know, he won there by, I have the, the figure in here somewhere, but it's like a tiny amount. You know, he beat Hillary Clinton by 0.72%. You know, it's, is that the one where it's like 20,000? Or am I yeah, I want to say because they 44,000. Okay, 44,000. Right. With Wisconsin, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, Pennsylvania, something about like, yeah, 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 that famous yeah, so, figure. Yeah, right. yeah, but it's yeah. just he doesn't have a huge margin of error here. You know, he really doesn't. And unless, you know, his, the, the genius brains that work for him are trying to figure out some way to like run up his margins in the part of Pennsylvania that like kind of looks like Alabama. It's just, I don't know what he's going to do if he loses these suburbs. And it seems like people are not just rejecting him, but they're coming out in full force. I mean, Delaware County said that turnout was up 25% from 2017 when they got that, when they grabbed those seats back. So clearly that wasn't a complacent year either. So I think some, the big concern that people keep batting around is, are people just going to get so fatigued under Trump that the anger will abate, you know, that no one can sustain that kind of energy for that long. But at least in Virginia and Pennsylvania, you know, it seems like people are pretty angry and they're expressing their dislike of Trump through whatever local or state office is available to them. It's funny because, you know, there's, you mentioned Bucks County and I very briefly lived in Bucks County for, you know, just like soon after I got out of college. And that is an example of a, a part of the country that is, was logically Republican in a seventies, eighties, maybe nineties Republican party. Um, but, you know, you go to a place like Doylestown or kind of, you know, New Hope or, the, you know, obviously those are those are kind of specific kinds of towns. But that whole area, it's not really Trump Republican place. That's not the kind of place it is. It's more kind of affluent suburban. It, it's not maybe progressive, but it's not Trump. It's that's just so it does. It's it's. Once you sort of shake everything free and have a few elections where incumbency over time doesn't really control things, it kind of makes sense to me that you'd have th- that Democrats would 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 be in control. So it, it it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, especially in these pockets where I think in Delaware County there were even more Democrats registered than Republicans. There it was just the matter of one had a ground game and one didn't. You know, and that's I mean, what did we learn from Obama? That ground game is the entire battle. And now that I don't know, Democrats are getting organized again. It's just 
would be a more formidable force in these places that were kind of written off as bygone conclusions in the past. Right. Well, it's 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 also, uh, you know, who thinks about the county council? Right. Totally. <laughs> like, you know, you think about the president, you maybe think about your, you know, your kind of your, your people in Congress. But most people, and I even in, kind of include myself, like who even knows who's like some county council? So these things have to be... Um, uh, politicized and just to reference the and I think you were both there the event we the TPM event we had in New York City uh, about a month ago that one of the uh, the panel we had was we had one of the co-founders of uh, Indivisible uh, one of the people from the Justice Democrats Bernie AOC kind of kind of world and one of the things we were uh, I can't remember who said it on the panel but said you have these you have these areas, sort of, you know, kind of intermediate zones in lots of states where maybe it's not kind of like, you know, blood red or super blue, but Republicans have kind of controlled things forever. And maybe it is that, you know, the population itself really is, you know, 55, 45 Republican. But basically, it stays Republican because everybody's been Republican forever and we've never really tried to change it. And obviously, the first step is you got to. You got to run candidates and really try, and and once you do that, sometimes you win, right? And 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 so those things, as you said, it's it's about it's about organizing, and um, and this this applies in all sorts of places around the country. We have what seems more like a political monoculture that once elections become legitimately contested, then people kind of come out and say, well, you know, actually. I, I kind of would like change too. You right. know, I never even thought about it because it didn't you know, seem like an option. Yeah, right. it didn't seem like an option. Uh, but, you know, so these things have a, have a dynamic effect. Well, and that's a through line of all these races that we were just discussing because, you know, Kentucky also went down because Bevin was a bad candidate and Bashir was a good one. Like, you know, if Bashir was an empty shirt, I'm sure it wouldn't have come out the same way. And in Virginia, for the first time, I think Democrats ran someone in all but four seats or something, which is seems like the most obvious thing. But the first step to winning is showing up. You need right. to run a candidate. And even better if it's a candidate who fits the seat. And and often you need to do it a few cycles before you right. before you, you do it. And it a number of those Republicans who went down last night in Virginia, I'm not thinking of any particular one of them, but a lot of them, they you look at them and you're kind of like, that's an earlier Virginia that you got elected in, and it's kind of clear you probably couldn't get elected today, but you're holding on over you know with incumbency, but over two or three cycles, someone knocks you out. Right. right. Yeah. All right, Kate. Thanks for. Running everything down for us. Uh, my favorite night of the year, so no problem. <laughs> Until next time. Okay, wait. You, who's Just who's seeing Grady's? Remember, the, you, 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 you. <laughs> remember you to remember the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. Get twenty percent off with uh, promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And remember to uh, sign up for TPM. Become a member of TPM Prime. We're on we're on the home stretch as you as you yeah mentioned. we're we're down we're, we have I think we have like hundred and seventy five signups that we need to get to our goal in this membership drive which is 32,000 total members which is a which is a huge milestone we're, we're in really striking close. distance yeah help we're us, in striking help distance. us out help us out <laughs> all right all right later Thank you. Bye. thanks